always a joy to be a part of this uh, great institution and uh, to be invited to come and share in this um, in chapel messages because um, uh, you folks are always very attentive to the Word of God. I um, also have a couple of my uh, children in the class in, in the school, Alex and Cynthia, and um, except I have a bone to pick with Dave Maddox. You know, I sent, we sent Alex here this, uh, this semester and first two weeks somebody gave him a black eye. And then I uh, was in his right eye and then the uh, next couple of weeks he had a black eye in the second eye, the left eye. And I um, don't appreciate that, Dave, at all. I've notified the Chicano Mafia to come and look for you and... <clears throat> so you better watch out. We don't give black eyes, we just take the heads off. I asked the Lord concerning a message for you that I should bring um, for your encouragement and instruction. And I've been led to talk about a very, um, very important topic. I know this morning we had Dr. Criswell come and share with you. That's one generation. And just uh, being with the man, you, you, you had him here and just, you know, a man like that doesn't have to say a whole lot. You just look at him. You know, and the Shekinah shines around his head. <laughs> kind of fellow that just makes you godly by just looking at him. And that's a generation. And then there's my generation. My generation, which they call the baby boomer generation. Anybody born uh, after 1946, from 1946 to 1964, is part of the baby boomer generation. And that's us. We're also called the messed up generation. When you look at Dr. Quizwell and you uh, become godly by looking at him, when you look at our generation, you backslide. Then, uh, then, there's, my, then there's your generation called the baby buster generation. Anybody born after 1964 is called the baby buster generation. And you're called the fix-it generation. You're called of God to fix things. Reading this book entitled The Baby Boomerang by Doug Murren, I want to just to read you a couple of uh, sections from this because I want to speak to your generation. Concerning the baby uh, boomer generation, here's what he says. We're the first generation to be raised by and large with absentee fathers. We're also the first generation whose grandparents had no significant input in terms of life preparation and wage earning skills. We're the most educated generation in history. We were raised in, in extreme affluence with opportunities uh, not given to our parents. We came into childhood and adolescence at the time of the greatest economic expansion in world history. We're the first generation with less purchasing power than our parents at each stage in adulthood. We're the first generation who can't afford what we've always had. We're the first generation raised under the near-constant threat of nuclear war. We're the first generation to be reared with television as a significant parenting tool. That's our generation. That's my generation. He goes on to say... To understand our generation, you have to understand these eight, eight principles or eight, um, eight uh, axioms 
And he names, uh, he names them here. And I want these nine, I want to give them to you as a prelude to what I have to say to you this morning. He says, uh, understanding number one, baby boomers are not belongers. May I just go on to pre- preface this? this uh, he's giving us uh, in this book insights on how to reach a baby boomer generation. But I'm going to draw a different, different slant to this. He says, to, to reach these people, you have to understand these things. First of all, they're not belongers. Secondly, he says they're, not, they're non-institutional. Thirdly, they are experience-oriented. Fourthly, they are extremely pragmatic in their sermon tastes. Number five, they, they believe women need to be represented in leadership. Number six, they expect that the contribution of singles be celebrated and accepted. Number seven, boomers believe the high level of dysfunctionality of this group needs to be faced. Number eight, he says, boomers will applaud innovation. And number nine, boomers have a sense of destiny. And you know, baby busters, when I think about my generation, I don't buy any of this. I don't buy any of this. Our generation has really messed things up. We're not belongers. You know why we're not belongers? Because we're not committed. We're not committed to anything. We're not committed to marriage. We're not committed to jobs. We're not committed to people. We're not committed to Christ. We're, uh, we're non-institutional. And what that means, it was, that means we're not loyal. We don't make good soldiers. We don't make good Americans. We don't make good Christian church members. We don't. The fact that we're experience-oriented means we have no principles. We don't function on the basis of God's Word. We, are one, we function on the basis of what makes you feel good. The fact that uh, we're extremely pragmatic, all that means is that we don't care about somebody else's feelings. If you don't meet my personal needs, I'm out of here. If you don't preach to me and to my needs, I have no patience with you, and so I'm out of here. That's what that means. I'm talking about my generation, not your generation. I'm talking about those that, those that were born between 1946 and 1964. Talking about myself. The fact that we uh, believe that women need to be represented in leadership. All that means is that we have denied the authority of God's Word. That's all it means. That's all it means. We've laid aside, laid aside traditional values that come from God's Word. And we don't care about these values. The fact that we expect the contributions of singles to be celebrated and accepted, all that means is we have a high tolerance for dysfunctionalism. We don't want to make things right. We want to maintain the status quo. The fact that we uh, believe in the high level of dysfunctionality to be accepted goes on to say the same thing. That we have no desire to be corrected. You know, folks, our generation doesn't love, they don't like strong preaching. We walk away from strong preaching. We want to be, a, we want to be pacified and courted and cared for and, ten, and, and be dealt with a very tender hand. We don't want anyone to, anybody to correct our wrongs. Boomers applaud innovation. Why? Because they have no sense of identity. They don't know who they are. We're the passing through generation. We have no sense of values, no sense of tradition, and though we want to keep on with change, we love change because change makes us comfortable. 
Change makes us feel good because we don't know who we are. And boomers have a sense of destiny. Really, they have no sense of destiny. They don't have any sense of spiritual reality. This is us. Understand your parents understanding us. Now you say, no, Alex, what's the whole point of this? Well, I want you to open your Bibles today to 1 Samuel chapter 8, please. 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, let's read verses 1 through 9. And it reads like this, chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed the sons, his sons to judge over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they, have, that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them from, the, from Egypt even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. You know, brothers and sisters, I'm here this, 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 this morning to share with you and, and also to warn you. To warn you. The Word of God goes on to say to us here that God wanted to rule the nation of Israel. He wanted to be their God and to lead them directly. And He chose Samuel, and Samuel was a great man of God. God raised them up in a supernatural way, in a special way, raised them up to be the spokesman for God. And Samuel brought about great revival, did a great job and a great task. And then Samuel was to pass on the mantle to his own sons, Joel and Abijah. And these fellows, these fellows dropped the baton. They dropped the baton and the people then demanded a change in administration, a change in procedure. And instead of having a man of God and God Himself ruling over them directly, they asked for a king. A king like the nations around them had, the king, had a king. And they disowned God and left the Lord and went out and pursued a king. And God was displeased with that. But He acquiesced, he acquiesced to their decision, to their heart's desire and he turned them over and he gave them a king. And you know the story? How the nation went from good to bad to worse. Until God finally raised up a king in the, in the form of David, a man after God's own heart. But even he, even he was not all that he was supposed to be. And you know, 
The baton was passed by Dr. Criswell's generation to my generation. And my generation has dropped the baton. Or at least we're fumbling with it. And our generation is passing the baton to your generation. To you. My question to you is that what will you do with this baton? What will you do with this baton? I want us to just examine this text. Because what I have to say, I say to myself, to my generation, and I say also to your generation. And as we look at this text, we can see, we can see the four major, 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 major failures that these people committed. That the sons of Samuel committed. They had a great responsibility, an awesome privilege to receive the baton from Samuel and to carry it and to execute judgment and to lead the people of Israel into the ways of God. And these guys dropped the baton and that just brought the nation into total disarray and they took the nation into ruin. And you and I, as we think about our future, the future of our churches, the future of our nation, the future of our world, you here this morning have a great and awesome opportunity and a great responsibility. And we want to give the baton to you. Whether you like it or not, it's coming your way and you have to take this baton and run with it. And my prayer is that you would not drop it the way we have dropped it. And my prayer is that you would pick it up and run with it and win the race and turn our churches around and turn our nation around and turn our world around. And, and, and bring godliness and holiness and righteousness with it back where it should be. And if you, you and I understand how these people failed, how these sons of Samuel failed, maybe it'll help us also. But you and I repeat, not repeat the same mistakes. People say you study history to learn from history, not to repeat the mistakes of history. And we study biblical history to do the same thing. Now follow with me this morning and let's just talk about these four major failures of this generation of Joel and Abijah. There are four of these. Verse 1, follow with me. I need you to note, first of all, that they failed to appreciate the blessing of living under godly influence. They failed to do that. You see, they had a very godly father. His name was Samuel. And Samuel was a great man of God. Great man of God. And they had some great grandparents. Hilkanah, Hilkanah and Hannah were godly people, very godly people. Here were two generations, grandparents and parents, who loved the Lord. They loved the Lord. They lived in the same town. They grew up in the town of, of Ramah. And so Joel and Abijah had a great, great uh, uh, heritage. Had a godly father, Samuel. And by the way, you scour the pages of Scripture and you don't find... Uh, you don't find many that walk in the same realm that Samuel walked. And Elkanah and Hannah, a woman of God, that God heard her prayer and answered her prayer. She had power with God. She moved the hand of God. And so these two generations were the generations that influenced, influenced. But think about it. With great grandparents that loved the Lord and parents like Samuel that loved the Lord, and these two guys, Joel and Abijah, what they turned out to be. Now, some people misunderstand. 
And they blamed Samuel for the mess up of, the, of his son. Even Ryrie. Even Ryrie. Let me quote you for what Ryrie says. It says that uh, the corruption is a reflection on Samuel, who was perhaps too involved in his ministry to watch over the spiritual welfare of his family. I think Ryrie's been li listening to Dr. Dobson too long. Because you see, that's not the case at all. That's not the case at all. Never in the text, never in the text, does God ever blame Samuel for the mess up of his sons. Now you recall, when Eli, when Eli's sons fell apart, when Hophni and Phinehas, when they went by the trash heap, when they failed God, God blamed Eli. God said, Eli, it is your fault. You are part of the problem. Because you had an opportunity to straighten out your boys and you did not. And so I lay the blame right at your hand, Eli. It is your fault. And these two sons of, of yours, these sons of Belial, I'm going to kill and destroy. They are worthless to me. But I lay the fault at your feet. It is your fault. Later on, when, when David's sons go by the wayside, God lays the blame at David's feet, David's hands. But my dear friends, I say to you this morning, that these two sons, Joel and Abijah, went by the wayside. God, not a one time does he ever blame Samuel. It was not Samuel's fault. It was not his fault. And I say that because sometimes our generation and your generation have a tendency to blame our parents for our mess-up. We're messing up in life. We're messing up spiritually, messing up morally, messing up academically, and we want to clean up our mess up on our parents' hands, but I'm going to say to you, as I say to myself, that cannot always be. When God has given you a generation, when God has blessed you with godly parents and godly grandparents, and God has given us a blessing, and God has influenced our hearts and lives, and God has given us before us people that pray for us and love us, and carry us from, from, from the cradle all the way. And they love us and we mess up. We cannot blame them. We have to blame ourselves. Are you with me now? These men had an opportunity. But they didn't appreciate the fact that they were influenced by godly people. Not to understand that. You ever mess up when you were in, in school? I recall one day I tried to lift, uh, I tried to burn the school down when I was growing up. <laughs> I had this magnifying glass. I think I was in the fifth grade. I had this magnifying glass, and I discovered that you could take the sun with a magnifying glass and at a certain angle light things on fire. You know what I'm saying? So I built this great pile of leaves, you know, and I was out there with a magnifying glass. And when I, where I grew up, it was 120 degrees in the shade. So the sun really blazes, you know, and it's hot. And I got this magnifying glass, and I was, I was waxing on this, this, this pile of leaves, and it caught on fire. And just as I was trying to get this fire going, a teacher, teacher came in, picked me by the collar, and dragged me right into the principal's office. I just felt myself going to the principal's office, dangling like this, my feet off the ground. And he sat me in Mr. Zane, Mr. Main's office. And I sat in the big black chair. Remember that one? You folks have been there, all two of you. And, and I sat in the big black chair and he looked at me and he said, 
He said, Alex, I used to be, I used to be your father's, your father's boy, scout, boy Scout leader. My eyes got big. I know he was old, but I didn't think it was that old. He says, I used to be your, your father's Boy Scout leader. I used to be your father's teacher and your father's principal. And I never had to spank your father. And I hope I never have to spank you. You know, friends, that touched my life. Because I had no excuse to be messing up. If my father was not a mess up, then I should not be a mess up either. And you this morning, if you have godly parents, you have no excuse to mess up. You know, we don't. We need to appreciate what God has done for us. Do we not? Do you? Do you? You say, well, Alex, you know, my parents were godly. And my parents were, they're like your kind of generation. Boomers boomed out. They're really messed up. They're divorced. Not walking with God. Then I say to you a second thing I say, then let's change the curse. Start a brand new leaf. Start a brand new generation. Begins with you. You don't need to continue in their paths. Just because your parents are so-called dysfunctional, you don't have to be dysfunctional. You have the grace of God, don't you? You have the power of God, don't you? You have the blood of Christ, don't you? You have a brand new opportunity. You don't, nobody's condemning you to that kind of life. Don't let anybody, don't let any psychologists or movements get you into that. You just depend upon the grace of God and you build for yourself a brand new, a brand new life. They failed to appreciate this influence that God had given to them. And friends, this morning, let's not, let's not Let's not forget about that. We have a great heritage, a great heritage that has been left to us. Some of us have been raised in Christian homes. We've been dedicated to God. We've been prayed over. As a matter of fact, to this day, people are still praying for you as you attend this institution. Why? Because they want to pass the baton on to you. Now follow with me this morning a second failure that these sons committed. And that's found in verse 3. In verse 3. His sons, however, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. The second mistake these people made was this. Is that they didn't personalize the message. They didn't make the message of God personal. They did not walk in his ways. Samuel went one way, and these guys went the other way. Samuel trusted God, and he went one way, and these two fellows went the opposite direction. They did not pursue the things of God. They were like Samuel's sons. You know, Samuel's sons, it says in chapter 2 and verse 12, that Samuel's sons did not know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. He says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know God. They did not know God. Hey folks, this morning, 
We need to make the God of the Bible a personal God. We need to make it personal. We need to know God. Samuel knew God. These fellows didn't. Samuel personalized the Lord. These fellows didn't. They had no personal relationship with God. Samuel did, but they didn't. See, God spoke to Samuel. God spoke to Samuel. God called to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel kept saying, what? Who are you? What is this? And finally one day Samuel said, who are you? Here am I. And God spoke to Samuel. And Samuel came to understand a personal relationship with the Lord. And here's the bottom line, my dear friends, is that eventually, sometime in your life, we have to believe in God because God is our God. Because God is my God. I have to love the Lord, I have to know the Lord, not because Dr. Criswell knows the Lord. Or not because some theologian or some guy that I read in the Bible, not because some man knows God. I need to know God for myself. Have a personal walk with the Lord. That He is my God. That He is my Lord. And make it personal. Because if it isn't personal, then it's no good. It's no good. The God of my grandfather can't be my God unless I make Him mine. Unless He speaks to me. When I pick up the pages of Scripture and God speaks to me and He guides me and every morning I walk with Him. When I wake up in the morning and God speaks to me. When I go to bed at night and God speaks to me. As we go through the day and God speaks to me. He's got to be speaking to me. And if He doesn't, I have not personalized the message. Now the sad thing sometimes of of belonging to a Christian family and a Christian church and a Christian institution like this is that we can be here and just play the part. You know what I'm saying? We can raise our hands and do all this and, and it's all because everyone else is doing it. But not because God is real to me. Let me ask you a question today. In all sincerity, is God real to you? Is Jesus Christ your own personal Savior? Are you walking with Him? Are you depending upon Him? Have you personalized the message of redemption? Is He your Lord? Because if it isn't, you're going to drop the baton. When we give it to you, you're going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. This is not mine. This is, this is not for me. Maybe for you, but it's not for me. And you're going to drop the baton of faith in Jesus Christ unless we have personalized the message. These sons didn't. They didn't. Nor did they walk in the ways of, of God. They didn't follow His ways. Samuel's convictions weren't his convictions, weren't their convictions. You know, once I, I had a chance to listen to Francis Schaeffer, right before he died. You know, I was hoping to be up close to him, you know, like some of these guys, you want to be really close to them. But I was like, way in the bleachers, you know, like way out there. And I could just, and I'm nearsighted, so I could just, 
kind of hardly make him out, you know. And he was so sick he couldn't stand. He was sitting down interviewing him. And the fellow said, Dr. Schaefer, why are you a Christian? And he said, I am a Christian because it is the truth. And they gripped my soul. I am a Christian because it is the truth. And that's it. That's it. I'm not a Christian because somebody else is a Christian. I'm not a Christian because some miracle happened. I'm not a Christian because the rest of the world's a Christian or because my wife is a Christian or my friends are Christian. I am a Christian because it is the truth. And that's it, friends. That's it right here. I believe this book because it's the truth. I believe in Christ because it's the truth. And that's what it means to make this message personal. Convictions. Biblical convictions. It's the truth. And this is why I believe it. I read an article recently and and they were giving reasons why people should not be living together. You know, when, you know, the guy and gal, they start loving, liking each other. So they want to shack up, you know, living together. So this mother's giving her, her daughter some reasons why they shouldn't be living together. And she gave her six reasons. Six reasons. Not a one of them because it was wrong. Not a one. Not because it was sin, because it was immoral, it was godless, nothing. Everything was like, you know, well, you know, it just wouldn't be to your advantage. Convictions. We don't do things because it's wrong. Not situation ethics. Not herd mentality. Not pragmatism. Not because the rest of the gang is doing it but simply because it's wrong. We have to learn to develop those kinds of convictions to make the message personal. Why don't you lie? Why don't you cheat on your exams? Well, Alex, I don't cheat because I'll get caught and kicked out of school. That will be a great embarrassment to my family. And you, you, then you ought to just quit right now, friend. That's the wrong reason to cheat, not to cheat. You shouldn't cheat because it's simply wrong, because God doesn't like it. Isn't that true? Yes or no? Come on, speak to me. Yes or no? You see, some of you don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> Why don't young people have, have sex before marriage? Well, I don't have sex because they might get married. Yeah, I may get pregnant. I don't have sex, well, you know, because I, uh, I just don't, you know. You don't have it because it's wrong, friends. It's simply sin. It's simply sin. It's fornication. That's why. And as you come to accept those kinds of convictions, see, our boomer generation, we don't have those convictions. You know, we're the, we're the miniskirt generation, you know, we're the bikini generation, we're the go-go generation, you know, we're the anything-goes generation. We don't have any of those. And you've got to come back and spit at our generation and pick up the Bible and have convictions for yourselves. Yes or no? Amen or not? And you ought not be intimidated by our generation. Our generation loves to intimidate you. 
They intimidate you with their education, intimidate you with your money, with their money, intimidate you with your pressure, intimidate you with their political parties. And I'm saying to you today, you ought not be intimidated. Fear no man but God Himself. And develop convictions. Walk in the ways of God because they are the ways of God. And this generation didn't do that. Follow with me. Number three, or the third failure. They didn't appropriate the mandate. Look at verse 2. Or should I say verses 1 and 2? When Samuel was old, he appointed his sons judges over Israel. God gave them, through Samuel, a mandate. To be a judge. Now, friends, think about that carefully. It said, the judge in those days was the man. That was the person that was very crucial to the welfare of the nation of Israel. Revival came by means of judges. In the chapters prior to chapter 8, chapter 6 and 7 and 8, Samuel brought great revival, great revival to the nation of Israel. One man can make a difference. A judge can make a difference. And he passed on this revival. He passed on this mandate to his sons. He says, now Joel and Abijah, I'm old now. you got to take over. Here's the baton. Now you guys go out and do a job for God. You're to stand in the gap and do a job for God. And these two yo-yos turned everything around. They wouldn't do it. They did not appreciate the stewardship that God has given to them. And it's tragic. It's tragic. What makes me, makes me most sad, it breaks my heart, is that God has given us here today in my generation a great stewardship. The Word of God, ministry, responsibilities. And we fail to appropriate that mandate. And we don't do. We don't have an attitude. I think of Elijah the Tishbite. I can't think of a greater prophet than Elijah the Tishbite. That man of God, bold, daring, faithful, trusting God. And as a great prophet of God, Elijah the Tishbite was, was about to depart. Behind him in the hillside was another fellow called Elisha. And God said to Elisha, Now you follow Elijah because the mantle will go from Elijah to Elisha. Remember that one? And Elisha followed right after Elijah. Followed him every place he went. And many times Elijah said, You know, Elisha, you stay here and I'm going to go over there. And Elisha said, No, 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 no. I, I'll go with you. I will go with you. 
Because some, somehow I know that you're going to be leaving us and I want to be there. I want to be there. Because I want your mantle to fall on me and I want you to give me a double portion of your spirit because I want to do exactly what you're doing. I want to do as well. And then when every place together, the great man of God, Elijah, and right next to him, Elisha, in the shadow of the giant of the faith. And every place they went, there was Elijah the giant and then Elisha the shadow. And then one day, in a whirlwind, God came and snatched the man out of this planet. He pulled Elijah out of here and took him home. And you know what Elisha looked up? And he saw Elijah going. And he said, the chariots of Israel, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen of the Lord are gone. Oh, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen of the Lord are gone. It was a cry of desperation. Desperation, friend. Because the man of God has been taken home. Do you know what it's like? Do you know what it's like to see a man of the stature of, of Dr. Criswell? Knowing that tomorrow or the day after, he's going to be gone. And who will take his place? Are you sitting and listening to the great John R. Rice? Old and feeble preacher. He could just barely make it up the steps and stands on the pulpit and preaches. And he's dead now. And on and on and on and on. Some are taken home because they die. And others fall because of sin. But always, my dear people, the chariots of God and the horsemen of Israel are God who will take their place. And whenever a great man of God falls, we also ought to have the same, because the mandate falls to you. The mandate falls to you. The mantle falls off. And who will pick it up? Who will pick it up? We also, friends, here tonight, here this morning, some of you here, that mantle's going to fall. One day, one day Dr. John's mantle's going to fall. Who's going to pick it up? I used to teach at a seminary and I was only a junior professor. They call you in just to take these run classes, you know. I loved it. And when I was waxing eloquent on Greek, you know, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, you know, really waxing. And, and I opened the window because it was hot in that room, so I opened the window, and I saw coming down the walkway the dean of the seminary. 
And I looked at him and there was a walking skeleton. The man was being consumed by cancer. And I saw him, the walking dead. And you know, you know, my, my hand trembled. And I was scared. Because if he goes, who takes his place? Not me. I'm just a kid. What do I know? What do I know about these giants? What am I supposed to do when they die? You know, and I was scared and I stopped lecturing. I just looked out the window in panic. My God, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. What are we going to do, friends? What are we going to do? What are you going to do? When the few faithful that, that remain from the boomer generation, what are we going to do when they die? What are you going to do when God takes them off in the chariot and the mantle falls to the ground? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? And I want to just encourage you, you need to stand in awe. And since the fact that the baton has been given, is passing on to you. You got to say, oh God, oh God, oh God, give me double portion. I'm not qualified for the task. I need a double portion of your power and of your grace. And then you reach down and pick up the mantle of Elijah. And say the same thing, where is the God of Elijah? And strike the waters and now them part it. And feel the power of God going through you. I know you don't feel qualified. I know you don't feel adequate. But may I say to you, qualified or no qualified, adequate or no adequate, when that mantle falls, some of you here, one of you here, has got to come by and pick it up. And live for God. And do a job for God. There's a fourth failure I want to share with you this morning as we close. And it's this. They, these two guys, did not preserve. They did not preserve the gains that Samuel made. They didn't. They undid what Samuel did. You notice in verse uh, in verse three, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside to dishonest gain, and took bribes and perverted justice. Now later on, Samuel will say, "You know, people, you don't want me as your, you don't want me as your, as your, as your, uh, as your, as your judge, as your king. That's all right. I just want you to know, I, I never ripped you guys off. I never took your money." I never took advantage of you. Never did. These guys did. See, our boomer generation and maybe your generation too, the twin sins of, the twin sins of materialism and immorality are destroying us. Destroying our churches, destroying our nation. Materialism and immorality. Money, things, possessions. And women and men, sex, party time, are wiping us out. 
Now, friends, you know, I'm not a novice at this stuff. You know, I live in the pit. I walk in the pit. And I know that even in a great institution like this, there's some people in here. That's your problem. Money's your God. And the women and the men are your thing. And you're catching that from our generation. We have destroyed the television. We've destroyed the movies. We've destroyed everything that's, that's, that's decent. You can't go any place. And, and some of you here are having some tremendous problems with, with, with your feelings and your passions. And you know, oftentimes, it's not even your fault. It's our fault. Because we have messed things up. But you've got to resist that. You've got to come back to worship God, not worship things. Come back to, to, to wholesome and purity. And the gains made by another generation to reverse that. And that you and I would come and keep on the good things and the wholesome things and the righteous things. Even though, even though we might appear to be a, 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 a square generation to those around us. A not in generation. Not the Pepsi generation or the Coca-Cola generation, but another generation. Those four failures of my generation, are you doing the same thing? God spoke to Ezekiel once. He says, I'm looking for a man or a woman to stand in the gap. Remember that? You know, I have found that one man can make a difference. One woman can make a difference. I used to go watch my son play football when he was playing football in high school. And I was also with you guys when you, when you thrashed Biola a few weeks ago. I love that. I love that. But I found that if you get off the stands, if you get off the stands and get down along the side, the line, walk along the sideline, you know, where all the coaches walk and the players watch, walk. I found that I could do that. And I could walk along the line, and I could pick a guy playing on the line, let's say number 44 or number 38 or number 65, you know. And I know that I could, I could stand there, and I could say, All right, number 68, bust in! Busted 68. Go through and bust it. You know what the most important number on a, on a football team? You know what it is? The most important number is your number. Whatever number you're wearing, that is the most important number. See, and most folks in football, football teams don't have any fans out there. Only the two or three great people have fans. That's the folks are out there. So when somebody calls 68 out, that's you. Somebody noticed you. And so something happens to your system. The adrenaline starts to pump. 68. He said, bust in, and 68 turns into an animal. He used to be a little sheep being bumped around. And 68 gets mean. And he gets meaner and meaner and meaner. Before you know it, his countenance changes. He turned into the werewolf. Fangs come out. And now he's, he's ready. And that poor guy in the opposite line better watch out because now something has happened and the man will bust through. He'll bust through when something happens and the team is electrified. 
And I was praying to God this morning someplace out there there'd be a man or a woman who would stand in the gap of the bust of the baby buster generation who would not be a baby buster, but who would bust the generation and stand for God and stand in the gap and do something great for the Lord. We ask, Lord, that at this time you would speak to our hearts and, Lord, you've considered our own generation, my, my peers, what we have done. And I would ask now for this new generation what they should do. And that this morning you would choose from here men and women who would say, Here am I. Oh God. Oh God. Here am I. So Lord God, this morning speak to us, we pray. As we're seated, I'd like to ask those of you in the audience would say, You know, Alex, I... I'd like to be that gap person. I really would. I want to tell God that, Lord, I, I want to pick up that baton, pick up that mantle, and be that gap person. Be that woman, be that man to stand for truth. And I'd like to ask you to stand, please, if that's what God has spoken to you. You just stand. Now don't stand if you don't mean business. If you don't mean business, don't stand. But if you mean business, if you would stand. And please don't stand. Please don't stand if you don't mean business. This is no time to be playing the games. It's time for us to just be sober and sincere and honest before the Lord. And you that are standing, if you would pray to God, perhaps for forgiveness for your sins, I don't know, but you know, for cleansing of your heart, repentance maybe of the way you've been living, following the paths of, of my generation, to turn to repent, to live for God in purity and honesty. If you don't know Christ personally, that you do, make it your ambition not to rest, not to sleep, until the Lord is your Lord, a personal Savior. And for some of you here this morning, that you would pick up the mantle of those that have gone before you, asking God for a double portion and having a dare to serve the Lord. Lord, I pray this morning that you look down upon these people here, those that have stood, and that, Lord, you would draw them to yourself. Some need protection, some need guidance, some need special strength. And, Lord, may they mark this day, this day in February the 7th, a day when an old and godly preacher came and spoke to them earlier. And perhaps left his mantle here. When another less qualified came and simply echoed the thought. May you draw from these the generation that will preach Christ and holiness and righteousness. Oh, my Father, bless them. Bless them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me share with you this morning. I love you very much. pray for you often. God bless you.